Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Pangea Bed. If you're a fan of podcasts, you've no doubt heard countless mattress ads, but have you ever heard of Pangea Bed? Like everything I do, this one is special. Pangea Bed is a copper-infused mattress with the highest ratings of any mattress sold online. I love my Pangea Bed, and I know you will too. I literally just got one for my home in California, and it's just the best. You cannot underestimate a good night's sleep. Shop online at www.pangeabed.com to get a mattress built by people who really care about your sleep. The mattress will be shipped right to your front door for free, and you can sleep on it for 100 days risk-free. Enter coupon code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, to get $200 off any mattress purchase. The biggest discount available on Pangea Bed. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, presented by the Ringer Podcast Network and Major Domo Media. The song you're listening to is by the great band Yola Tango called Pass the Hatchet. I am extraordinarily excited that they're allowing us to use their music. They've just released a new album on Matador Records. Please check them out. One of my favorite bands, one of the greatest bands of all time. So we're here to talk about Pre-Opening Diaries Volume 3. And in this one, we Bill and I talked a little bit deeper about the beginnings of Major Domo, the restaurant, and the menu development. So before this, we were talking about how we got here and some of the pressures involved. And now we're getting into, I think, the more interesting heart of the matter, the juicy bits of what exactly we were going to put on the menu. And we really didn't know at the time. So we opened up January and... Beginning around October, we started to do a series of dinners because the kitchen that we were hoping to move into was delayed. So we were trying to test out a lot of the recipes on friends. And Bill was fortunate enough and we were lucky enough to cook for him and his friends. And Bill got to taste a lot of the stuff. So you might hear him talk like he's got inside baseball about some of the food. So a lot of those dishes that we made then are on the menu today. And you could probably hear my lack of confidence in terms of what we're actually going to put on the menu because it's still an excruciatingly maddening process about what actually makes it. And I think from my mistakes in the past, I've learned that it's best if I don't talk about it. The irony is that here I'm talking about it, but I was trying to figure out how not to typecast or pigeonhole the food that we're making. And I never really wanted to say we're making Korean food. I never wanted to say we're making American food. In some way, it's an homage and an ode to what I love most about Southern California and Los Angeles, which to me is the genuine melting pot of America because there's so many types of voices and culinary themes prevalent throughout LA dining. So we wanted to do something that was respectful and something that was also very different than we had done in the past. It was a very tough project for us to get started and then got more difficult as we sort of sunk our teeth into it because of the scope, because we're an outsider coming to Los Angeles, because we're located just outside Chinatown, a place that we want to respect. And we have Koreatown here. You have a vibrant LA dining scene already. So we were really treading very carefully and I didn't want to say what we were doing. And, and I, I wanted us to make mistakes. And I think the best way I could describe it is I wanted to set a trajectory that allowed myself and the team at Major Domo to make mistakes because I genuinely believe failure and being able to process the things that didn't work well and did work well and chart a, a course where we could make more mistakes. The best kind of mistakes are the ones that lead to like new discoveries. And that's why I was so sort of hesitant telling Bill anything. But I think within it, you can understand some of the philosophies and some of how I, I think about food. So without going any further into it, here is volume three, and I hope you enjoy. I think today we're going to, as we're inching a little bit closer to opening up this restaurant in um, north of Chinatown, Los Angeles, further about the menu development, we've just moved into the space. We've been spending probably the past month and a half at the Line Hotel, courtesy of Roy Choi and the team there. We should mention it's January, January 5th. 5th. 
We taped the last one a week ago, the first two episodes. Yeah. So we're getting closer. It's bad timing because of the holidays. Construction slows down. You know, people think, or I had the assumption that building stuff in Los Angeles might be easier than New York. That's not true at all. They're both incredibly difficult places to operate. What makes them difficult? Permitting is the big thing. Yeah. It just is something that I don't understand. Thankfully, we have all these other people working on it, but- you have construction issues. Basically, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And we were just trying to get into the space and walk through it. And it's been really hard because as much as you game plan out and recipe test, it doesn't really work unless you're actually in the space. It's like preseason football. What do you do for kitchens during this time? Because you've been in LA for the last couple of months. I know you've cooked at a couple of people's houses basically to use their equipment. Yeah. And test dishes. So- I wanted to make sure on this restaurant that the number one thing was building the right team and the culture, that we had the same sort of value systems. So we needed to get some like work in and knowing that the restaurant was going to be delayed and not having dinner service, which is essentially like, you know, lunch or dinner, like just getting the reps in when working with the front of the house with all the cooks and understanding how the flow works is so important. And you can't really replicate that. So there's a sense of seriousness. It's like being in a, like a sporting event or a game. Like you can't like make that up, that feeling of intensity. So I wanted to do a series of dinners with friends that I know, or um, I want to say influencers, just people that have great kitchens that would allow us to cook. And it was almost like testing our R&D. We were making dishes that we had never made before. And we did that three different occasions. I went to the one you did at Kimmel's house. Yes, and that was the first one. I think you threw away like four dishes that you were working on. You were making <laughs> things and just getting mad and getting rid of them. Uh, yes. Is that a normal process or is that we're in the trial and error part of It's both. Of you have a plan. Sometimes you sketch it out. Sometimes you have an idea. You prep it out. And then when you're making it for people, it just takes a different tone. It has a different sort of sensibility. And you're able to see very clearly this is going to work or it's not going to work. Yeah. But you have no idea until you actually create it. It was important for me because it's something I think I've said before, but definitely I wanted my team there of uh, Josh and Mark and Christine and everyone else there. There's probably about eight of us to see that you can come up with a dish and it's really important that that failure, we take that failure and edit it into something else because you can't just have the final version in your head. I'm a big believer that if you have a final dish in your head, you can't get there unless you actually fuck it up like 20 times. Right. Like the process is actually, it's actually very much the trust the process. I feel the same way about mac and cheese when I make it for my kids. So I get it. We'll have that competition one day. I've always tried different cheeses <laughs> and I've never really been totally happy with it. So, you know, we're making these dishes and I, I remember one was, um, I can't remember what dish it was. It was one of the fish courses and I was just like, I'm not serving this. And I'm sure it would have been fine, but it just didn't, develop properly. And Did you have to dump it on Chen's head though? I thought that was really <laughs> weird. But overall, I thought it worked really well. But besides actually just making the food, because, you know, having the sense of service, like when you're actually in the act of making food for people that are testing it and they're not your, your friends or your employees, but people that have no idea what you're eating, what they're eating, it's a nerve wracking proposition. So are you testing, you're watching them to see how they're responding? Because you got celebrities in the room and People trying stuff for the first time? Are you looking for nervous stuff? We intentionally gave people stuff that they would never have had before to see, right? I know that we gave you yeah. that, like that rice dish where you make it with your hands. Yeah, that was great. And that's another thing is like, because it's not a real dinner service, you can try, you know, ridiculous things that you might not have ever done and, and take that reaction. So what we're looking for is, what I look for is number one is, are they actually eating the food? There's that sense of like, it's like when you hear a good song or a joke or like there's that undeniable look of expression of like, oh, this is delicious. Yeah. And there's varying degrees of that. So you're looking at that because I feel like you can't lie, right? I always think that if we hadn't seen each other in like 20 years and we were best friends and you go and get lunch or dinner, you know, the, the, the mark of a really great meal would be, I can't talk to you because the food's too good. That's the pinnacle. Yeah. And then you're looking at uh, no matter how much food you've given them, are the plates coming back clean, right? Like, so Albert Audra, he was the chef at LBE. He was a pastry chef. One of the reasons why he chose being a pastry chef in a very long tasting format in Spain 
one of the best chefs ever, is he liked the challenge of having to make you desserts after you've had like a three-hour dinner. Yeah. That's the highest level of difficulty. So we're just taking notes. That was really, I think it went really well, but besides the actual food, the one thing I wanted to take away from cooking at Kimmel's was how does the team work together? Yeah. It's like a basketball scrimmage. It's exactly like a basketball scrimmage, even though I rarely play basketball, but from the front of the house, how they're handling mistakes, who's trying to do what. And thankfully, this is what I I noticed right off the bat, and maybe this happens in sports too, is everyone wants to help out. So everyone wants to sort of be a hero and like prevent problems from happening. So no one actually does their own job. And then it turns into this clusterfuck. So that's what I saw right off the bat was like, hey, that's a good sign that everyone wants to participate. Everyone wants to help out. Problem is you actually need some hierarchy to make sure that everyone's in their lane. It's Belichick always says like, do your job right for the Pats, right? Yeah. That's it. And I was repeating that over and over again. Yeah. You might have seen me gotten frustrated that night. You were mad at the dumplings, but I think it was the dumplings fault. I don't See, think they should have blocked, done what they I've did. already blocked it out that I don't even remember what dumplings. You made like dessert oh, dumplings or yeah, something. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You we just made got hot mad dog. at them. We wanted to make hot dog, which is another, I'll, I'll talk about it later, but we didn't serve dessert because it didn't proof properly. You got in a fight with the dessert. I got in a fight with the dessert. It was just it was a, a fist fight. It was a play that should have been executed well, but it failed miserably. And while I cooked it, I wasn't going to give it to you guys because it was just not good. It was like, it was actually poorly made. It's funny because I would have loved to have tried it and then had you explain why it didn't work. But you didn't even give me that. You just threw it in the garbage. Yeah, I definitely threw it in the garbage before. I but I can get that. Like, if I wrote something I didn't like and you were like, let me read it anyway, I would have been like, no, fuck you. Exactly. Yeah. So I get I, it. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's You don't want to be judged on something that you know is already crappy. Yeah. And I believe very strongly in this dish that we're working on. In fact- we, So what's the dish? Tell us. So hot dog is an interesting Korean dish. It's like a stuffed pancake. It's a yeasted bread, which is, again, something that you don't necessarily see too much. The origins of this are from Chinese immigrants coming to Korea because Chinese actually have yeasted bread, like, like a risen bread. Yeah. And you see it in street stands. Mostly it's a street food. So it's a wheat flour bread that's been stuffed most commonly with sugar and cinnamon. And they pan fry it to varying degrees of oil. So sometimes you can have it almost like baked. Other times it's almost like a donut and it's pressed and it's flattened. So it's just like a, how should I say? It's like almost like a pop tart, but of donut form. Got it. And I love eating these. And for whatever reason, it hasn't really picked up. You don't really see it in restaurants, Korean restaurants. You specifically really only see it in street stands. So I wanted to make a dessert of that, but I didn't want to make it exactly like hot dog. And we had served you guys this chickpea bread before as well. So one of the things that we wanted to do with the hot dog was start to understand breads in Korea, particularly the breads that come from Northern China, which are called Bing. So that was the interesting thing is hot dog to me was something that could also be savory and sweet and had a long history because I think the understanding of where the food comes from was so important to me. So we went down that rabbit hole, something we'll again talk about later. And we made it instead of using sugar and cinnamon, we use dates because California has some of the best dates in the world. Great dates here. Great dates. And it's something that I've never worked with being from New York. And we put peanuts. We put a few other things in there because we were trying to do what was essentially some kind of version of Konolfi or some kind of, not even a Middle Eastern dessert. It was something that was like, if my ancestors moved to Tehran or something like that, how would hot dog look like oh, there? I like that. I like because when you mix I never, cultures. Yeah. I never worked with dates before. And it's like, okay, how would dates be used in Korean cuisine? And there are like Korean like dates, but not these kinds of super sweet dates. Yeah. So without going on a crazy tangent, I had just envisioned what kind of dessert might happen if I merged dates with hot dog. And that's what happened. And for a variety of reasons that night when we made it, we still hadn't figured out at what time do you stuff the bread. Secondly, we had still haven't figured out what was the best time to make the bread and proof the bread. And proofing is letting it rise. And there's just a thousand variables that go into making a dish really good. And the only way we're going to do it is screwing it up. So actually screwing up that dish was super important. And now- Because you learn from the screw up. Oh, it sucks. 
no one wants to screw it up, but you're never going to know until you actually see what doesn't work. And that's the joy and absolute agony and pain in making a dish. I like how you take stuff from one culture and then it's almost like you're Dr. Moreau where you're like mixing, you know, you've seen that movie? Yeah. Where you mix the animals. So you basically take something that works in one Wasn't way. Wasn't that a remake with Brando? They made the remake with Brando and Val Kilmer. Yeah. Was it Brando's last movie? It might've been. He's bald. It's sad. But like the cannoli is a big Italian dessert, right? But you never see anyone try to be like, all right, I'm going to take the cannoli and put this spin on it. People just leave the cannoli alone. Right. And I think we think that way most of the time with desserts. Nobody thinks to put spin on desserts. It's not even just spin. It's, you know, this is a crazy tangent, but the kind of like fusion I want is like where it's seamless. So like, for instance, I love Joel Embiid. I love Hakeem Olajuwon. Two of the commonalities I see there is they both played soccer. That's why they have such great footwork. Yeah. So it's like, Okay, that makes sense. They're like soccer basketball players. Right. And they do something great. They've taken the best of soccer and merged it into how that would be successful in basketball. And that's how I would look at an ingredient, like a date, that's something that I'm not familiar with personally, but I do understand hot dog. I understand the history of hot dog and how could that actually work? So I've always used this thesis for me was, how can I make everything Korean food? Like that's probably the year that I'm in the past two, three years is me being much more comfortable making Korean food, but not making Korean food. Cause yeah. I don't ever want to be typecast as only making Korean food. So let's just say it was a cannoli. I know nothing about cannolis. My family's, it's not part of what we eat, but what if my family moved to, you know, the Bronx in the 1920s, my grandfather worked for an Italian American restaurant. Yeah. And then next thing you know, he's making cannolis stuffed with like red bean or sweet rice. That's the best part of food where you can get innovation because it's new, but it's also respectful. And it's also an honest story. Yeah. And I think that if you understand two cultures, there's a way to do it well. And that's the struggle to find where it's not confusing to people. And it gets me upset when I see other people say like, if I was a, a white French chef and I put Asian ingredients on, Everyone was like, oh, that's cool. Like, you're allowed to do that. But if I'm a Korean-American chef and I make Asian food with French ingredients, oh, that's confusing. That's fusion. So to me, that's like a double standard. And I want to like sort of help eradicate that. Yeah, like I've seen you know, my mom, that whole side's Italian. The Italians look at dessert as like a filling thing because the Italians, everything they do is filling. So it's like the cannoli makes no sense as a dessert. It's this, It's basically this round cookie thingy, whatever it is, with the ricotta cheese in the right. middle. And it's just heavy. And if you have two of them, you just feel sick <laughs> after. And like same thing with like cheesecake or rice pudding. It's all stuff that's super heavy. Like they don't believe in like delicacy for dessert. But rice pudding is a perfect example. You want to see where it can overlap with another culture. Yes. So and it, rice pudding can go a lot of a ways. A lot of different ways. I've had your mom's rice pudding. Yes. It is delicious. And you were like nervous because like, oh, I didn't bring the whipping cream. And I was like, no, man, it's really rich already and yeah. delicious. And it's the cinnamon. whipping cream does push it over the top though. But it's so good. And every culture that I know that probably serves rice, I'm not actually perfectly guaranteeing this, but if I look at it just from Korean or Chinese or Japanese or even Thai, you have variations of rice pudding. And Okay, so you have Italian rice pudding and you have Asian rice pudding. Where do they overlap? And how do you take that into something else? And how do we get dates in it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> dates may be potentially good with the rice pudding. <laughs> so it's a risky proposition because then if you do it poorly, it sucks. Yeah, but you're the only one who knows. I also think skillets, for the most part, can't lose with dessert. Skillets? If you, if you oh, bring like somebody a-, a skillet, they're just automatically going to think it's a B plus. doesn't even matter if it's hot. There's a little burn stuff on the sides. People are in. So you're a big like uh, cornbread kind of guy, like in a skillet? I do like cornbread. Yeah, that's really good. I do like cornbread. Skillets are good. Charlotte Druckmann wrote a, a really great cookbook in skillets. You guys should check it out. She's a terrific writer. All right. So the menu. The last time in volume two, we talked about how many items are actually on a menu. And you said there's no set item in your head, but what you don't want to do is be the Cheesecake Factory and have 130 dishes. Yeah, so right now in terms of the menu, some of the staff are are upset at me because I'm not allowing us to get it down closer to the number of items it needs to be. So what number is that? Is it a range? 
Is it 18 to 23? I think it's somewhere between 30 and 40 items. Right Including now, appetizers, dessert. Yeah. Again, per station, you're looking at four to five. Right. And there's like six stations. So. And you mentioned before, you feel like once you get past four or five, it's bad for whoever's in charge. It's of- just hard to execute. So some kitchens now you're seeing, you know, two people per station and they only are responsible for one or two dishes. And yeah. again, I think that's like spread offense cooking. So you got to just figure out how to grow from that a little bit. So it's a lot. And we're, we haven't brought in staff yet. So we're trying to develop recipes where it's not going to be overly complicated, number one. Number two, because of, you know, labor is expensive right now. You want to find that happy middle of where they're going to learn and they're all not doing like drudgery in terms of work. And it's also not going to take forever to do. So we haven't figured that out yet, but we're going to probably do another round of edits once we get the hourly employees in. Do you look at stuff like that would be a good dish, but it would take too long? Like, let's say soup. Is soup like a pain in the ass to have because you need a lot of it? Yes and no. All right. Like, we are going to have some soups, but one of the things we're arguing over right now is uh, I want to put like a chicken soup on the menu. It's a recipe my grandma used to make, but I want the whole idea of, you're presented the chicken, and while you're eating the chicken, you're having every kind of uh, way you can eat that chicken. Like, so it's so like an entree. More or less, it would be like an entree, but I was debating, do people actually want to eat like a chicken soup? Because like some of my favorite restaurants in Japan are places where you sit down in front of a chef, and they make you an entire meal out of one chicken, right? And you finish with a chicken soup. Yeah. So for me, I love boiled chicken meat. It's delicious. Doesn't sound sexy, but- if you boil it where it's still cooked through and it has some texture and you season it with just salt and pepper, maybe some sesame oil, you can, that's one way that white chicken meat is delicious. And then you can pick the dark meat out and turn that into a salad. You can take all the chicken fat and some of the broth and cook rice in that. And you can almost do a play on high knees chicken rice. And then at the end, you can serve like a, a chicken noodle soup with the rest of the chicken and the chicken carcass. So that's what I wanted to do. And everyone was like, maybe we'll get there in three months, six months. But right now, like, Dave, like, how the hell are you going to execute this? So I like to put these impossible, not impossible, but really um, outlier-like dishes that are not really hard to do, but service-wise would be very hard for us to execute. Like a dish like that, is that a whole chicken for each? How many soups do you get out of the chicken? I mean, one chicken. So I like, I think one chicken can produce a really delicious chicken soup. For one person. No, no. For four or four to six. Like, okay. That's another thing is like, if you make one chicken, like you can stretch that chicken out for, for more people. Right? Yeah. So one of the worst ways to cook chicken is just fried chicken sometimes. Right. Although it's delicious. Yeah. I feel like in, in Korea or even in Asia and at large, and I'm not going to just say localized just in Asia, but you stretch food out longer and there's more ways you can eat something. Yeah. So that's one of the things I want to do. And there's something so hospitable about serving soup. And so warming and the hot, uh, I just- I You wonder, know where I stand on soup. It's delicious. I think it's the most underrated item. Like our staff right now at The Ringer, like we actually have a soup slack. We have a slack <laughs> with all our things like, you know, basketball, football, movies, all these different things. And one of them is soup. And one of the big things is what is the commissary in our, on our oh, line? Right, right, right. What are the two soups today? And then us complaining about it. People love soup, especially love like soup. as a lunch, because some people don't want to have like heavy lunches. They want right. like a soup or a salad and they want to get out or a yogurt or whatever. And they just want to get out of lunch. If you're in the East Coast, you're going to have a lunch. But that's one of my concerns is I made the dish for my team and they all loved it. But it's also the response is, well, people want to pay. I mean, if you serve a really good chicken, you're you're talking about a meal that's going to be, I don't know, 40 to 80 bucks, depending on the kind of chicken. And I want to right now in my life and career, I just want to serve really clean, like not even light, but just clean broths. Yeah. Really, really beautiful broths. And I don't know if everyone loves that. It's not even pricier. It's just like, it's a study about removing everything. It's an exercise in minimalism almost. I mean, some of the things that make soup good are the things that wouldn't appeal to you, like salt. Some soups are super salty because it gives a flavor, but that's not necessarily- Means right. it's a good thing. But one of the, my opinion on soup is that fat is a massively important thing. Yeah. You just need enough fat on the surface to make it taste better. Right. right? There's something about the mouthfeel and, you know, having fat on a soup in America, like 
how it sort of separates on the water, on the liquid, I think freaks people out. Where do you stand on Thai soups? Because I always feel like the Thai soups are 80% there. And then they'll throw two more things in there that I didn't want in the soup. I think Thai soups are amazing. I think that's just you being a white guy. No, I la- I said they're eighty percent there. <laughs> well, they're probably saying I like that. the tum tum yeah. <laughs> Thai soups are super complex. The mushrooms are too big sometimes. Sometimes they'll put in bamboo and yeah. pick the bamboo out. They're probably saying the same thing about your New England clam chowder. Oh, no, I will not defend the New England clam chowder. <laughs> You know, the good thing about having a podcast now is like, I don't have to talk about everything we're doing on the menu development because it's, it's so much. I could talk about chicken soup for a month, probably. What was the best chicken soup you ever had? I still feel like my mom's chicken soup is the best yeah. chicken soup. And I, I'll stand by that because it's so clean and she only garnishes it with scallions, salt and pepper and sesame oil mm. and onions and garlic. That's it. So she basically boils a whole chicken and before it sort of disintegrates into nothing, once it's cooked, she picks the meat and while it's still hot, she season it with chopped scallions, salt and pepper and sesame oil, sometimes soy sauce. And as it cools down, it sort of soaks in all those beautiful flavors. So if you leave the chicken in the soup, eventually it becomes too waterlogged and it just is not so delicious. So she always keeps it on the side. And that way she has the beautiful broth and sometimes she'll add rice or just like clean, simple noodles and scallions. And it's so simple. It's so good. So that's the kind of soup that I want. And I'm a big fan of like Jewish jelly, matzo ball soups, even though I'm not Jewish. I like matzo ball soups. So good. Yeah. So good. Where do you stand on beef stew? Love beef stew. Because that's another one that if you're serving beef stew and you tell but like, what's for dinner tonight? My wife says beef stew. We're off like fired up. Yeah, because like can't miss. But it doesn't look so sexy to people, right? No. But it's delicious. And I mean, Koreans have beef stew. It would be more of a kalbi jim. So that's the braised short rib. The French have potafu or or different versions of that. So it's something you see in a variety of cultures. And I grew up on the chunky, the chunky so soup beef, the sirloin steak one sirloin and the steak. beef vegetable one. <laughs> Those were, those were probably terrible for us 38 years ago before they started taking some of the chemicals out, the mini, but I the love mini, them. The mini hamburger. The oh, mini. they were so good. <laughs> and the Chef Boyardee, I wonder, do kids even eat like that anymore? No, I don't think so. Like, are SpaghettiOs a thing? No one eats SpaghettiOs anymore. Well, obviously people must. By the way, I would eat SpaghettiOs right now. Cold. So I eat SpaghettiOs good. cold. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Every business needs great people, especially the restaurant industry, and it's becoming more and more difficult to find them. It's just not that easy to just post something online. You're praying to find the right person by just putting something there. And the fact of the matter is ZipRecruiter is something that my restaurant group, Momofuku, uses quite a bit and to great extent, filling all kinds of needs from back of the office to management to accounting, you name it, ZipRecruiter's got it all. So I can tell you from experience, we use them. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. They learn what you're looking for, identify the right people with the right experience, and invite them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidate is out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs, including my own. Right now, many listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show, Pre-Opening Diaries, Volume 3. Going back to the menu, it's still an exercise about keeping tension, about how many possibilities of ingredients and dishes, simultaneously having it moored and anchored to an idea of what we're trying to do, which is still hard to describe, with the undertone sort of like a foundation that we're trying to limit ourselves in terms of what and how we can cook stuff. For a chef, as you get older, I think that's what you try to explore is not minimalism, but how do you do more with less? And that's what we're trying to do. You don't want to cook from ingredients from all over the world. You don't want to make this hodgepodge of everything. Even though we're trying to merge some things together, I think it's super important for me, and I know for a bunch of other cooks and chefs, to give yourself limits. 
So I've always viewed it like a Crayola box, right? Like before you graduate to the 124, 128 box of colors, just do the basic five and yeah. figure out what you can do with that. And and very few people, very few chefs have ever, in my opinion, been able to take flavors from all over the world, different cultures, and merge it into something that is really, really sensible and delicious. So for us, we're trying to localize it specifically to California in terms of ingredients. And then the second sort of rule is, is it just from America and what can we make ourselves? It's not super strict, but it's strict enough where we're not going to try to put like, you know, chimichurri sauce on the chicken soup, you know? So how much flexibility do you have with, you know, like you're not going to have a fish of the day, but you'll probably play off of what fish are around that are just awesome that you want to cook with. Well, that's, so what do you do with the menu? With that's that? hard right now because I'm in love with Michael Siramusti of Providence is part of a company called Cape Seafood, and they're trying to shed light and promote all the great uh, Los Angeles and Southern California fisheries. And it's a hodgepodge of stuff, but they get some amazing, amazing things that I've never worked with. So um, give me an example. There's West Coast Yellowtail which is like hamachi, but it's not hamachi. That's something I think Americans always get wrong. It's If it's pretty big, it's called buri. And in the wintertime right now, that's like the best time to eat it. Santa Barbara sea urchin, obviously, you have all kinds of crabs, box crabs, rock crabs, sand dabs, or they, these tiny sort of flat fish. The list goes on and on in terms of what's available, and it's constantly changing. So that's a blessing and a curse to some people. I like the challenge of being able to like cook as the market you know, allows you to. Yeah. But we're running into problems in terms of seafood because one of the things that I love is clams. I love clams. Yeah. So we're having a debate, like two debates. One is rock crab season here is delicious. I want to serve rock crab claws, but they're seasonal and they don't grow on trees. So sometimes there are no rock crabs, right? So customers want consistency. So I'm having a debate with Jude, the exec chef, because he wants to put crabs from the East Coast on. And I'm like, no, we can't. But I don't know. We don't have an answer there yet. But clams is another thing. They're great clams from the state of Washington, but we don't have access to get them on a regular basis. So when you say customers want consistency, what makes you think that? Because sometimes I respect when I go to a restaurant and they're like, yeah, we're out of the clams. Before I talk about the customers, I think for the cooks, yeah, right. When you have a certain size, consistency is so important because that's what you do. You you do repetition. I said this recently to one of my cooks. We're like an improv team, yeah. And before you can do improv, not that I've ever done it, I think you need to sort of have a basics of understandings and working with the same thing so you can play off each other, and then you can introduce all the wacky stuff. Yeah, you know, like for instance, if I get yellow tail and I get a rockfish and a monkfish, and I change all the fish every day, while they might be learning it, treating each fish differently, it would be like- um, That makes sense. Kyrie Irving guarding all the different point guards. Like every day it's going to be a different challenge and yeah. you have to be prepared for that. So you're looking at more like special occasions, like the yes. rock crabs are in right now for these next three months. Let's go, let's also go to town with the rock working crabs. working with the same thing over and over. So that consistency, I've always viewed unique consistency- like 100% committed to tradition, systems, and consistency, and 100% committed to anarchy and creativity. So we're trying to find that balance right now in terms of what we can cook and execute and being ahead of in terms of why and how a customer might get bored. I lived there for 15 years. I had no idea we had good rock crabs. Amazing. They're, they're really good. Day. The claws here- I don't even know where I would get them. You had the crabs. No, we didn't serve you the crabs. Well, where? What restaurant has rock crabs? Some people do from Cape Seafood, the, the, the restaurants that- And I didn't know about the Santa Barbara sea urchin scene. The sea urchin here is as good. It's different than the stuff from Maine and very different than the stuff from Hokkaido. And you want it from really cold waters. So the seafood in California is, is actually really tremendous. So there's a lot for us to figure out. And just talking to you right now, I'm like, this is so stupid because it's do you, just Can impossible. you have like a lemon on fish dishes? Like, do you want to have three or less? Because you want to steer people toward the ones that you like, or how does that work? I would rather serve a whole fish. When I did the ringer thing about like the last meal, I said I would want to go to San Sebastian to have turbo. Yeah. I even made fun of Joe House about that too. Yeah. I still love eating fish on the bone. And 
while there are some fish that are delicious filleted and served as a portion, you know, fish cooked on the bone is just going to be more delicious because you're going to get fish cooked differently. It's not a uniform thing. And on the bone, it's going to just be a little bit more moist and something that I want to do, but we're trying to figure out, is that something that we can execute in this restaurant without just deep frying a whole fish is something that I actually think we might do too, or just grilling a whole piece of fish or steaming a whole piece of fish just with ginger and scallions and a little soy sauce and Shaoxing wine. That's like the best kind of fish when I go to a Cantonese restaurant with a bowl of rice. It's something that we haven't quite figured out. So you want to have like a larger fish, then you need a fish for one. What kind of fish for one is that? Fish stew? I have a fish stew, but we're trying to figure out how to make that too. We have the recipe. We've been working on it. I have a spicy cod stew, but our fish stew is like, looks really, really gnarly. I don't know if people want to commit to that for dinner yet. So it allows me to maybe make two or three for a special on a day. And it's almost like a screen test. Why I did these dinners at people's houses. Cause you can get some information yeah. and tailor it as, as you move on the next day. I think scallops are the most underrated fish and usually the worst order because. Well, they're all, it's an East coast thing. Yeah. They're too small. I like the big fat ones and I like to have a lot. But you're from New England. I know. That's why you can say these Here things. it's like, it's a little tiny delicacy and you're always mad you ordered it afterwards. You know, we want to put scallops on. I love scallops. They're they're like candy of the ocean. Are they super expensive? They are expensive, like the really good ones. Most expensive lobster. Well, yeah, spiny lobster here, but as delicious as spiny lobster is, as a whole rule, I don't love lobster. Yeah. I like it but I don't love it as much as everyone else. I love a lobster roll and stuff like this. It is weird. Everyone decided lobster was the premier fish. I can't tell you why. I love Maine lobster. I love, I prefer cold water lobsters, but what I love most about a lobster is the fact that you can make a delicious soup from it or the sauce. So I don't know. This is like sounding like cooking school a little bit. What about meat? We're messing around with a lot of short ribs right now. And we just got in some beef that is Holstein cow. You know, there's a big debate about if you are a male dairy cow, you lost the genetic lotto. (laughs) Like You're not really needed. You need it for steak. But traditionally, people don't eat Holstein because they don't think it's a delicious cut, right? It's a very different fat content and different marbling. So we want to shed light on that. So we've been screwing around with these Holstein male dairy cows, and they're really good. So we're trying to figure out how that fits into the menu. I'll be excited when we have the menu edited down so we can talk about the exact menu, but I feel like we're pretty far away still in terms of what that's going to be. Is there a meat that's just a stay away because it's too complicated and the quality varies too much? I mean, meat's harder than ever before, right? To get really good quality, consistent quality. Steaks are harder to choose quality, I think, than ever before. What we're trying to figure out is if we have a, a meat for one, like if I'm a solo diner eating at a bar, And I don't want to commit to like a giant porterhouse or something. Like what kind of steak for one person would you want? Nobody likes the answer to this, but there is an answer. I don't know what it is yet. So there's all these new kinds of cuts. The bone-in filet is still the best steak. You like bone-in filet? I will ride or die with the bone-in filet. Everyone tries to get cute with these other steaks. It's like, you know what's good? The bone-in filet. Okay. So I was about to make fun of the filet. (laughs) The bone-in filet. But- the best cut. It's not the it's best delicious. cut. It's not the best cut. That yeah, but, but is. But this is like steak snob stuff. You sound, you sound stuff. like Donald Trump right now. No, I, I'm happy sounding <laughs> like Donald Trump. I love the bone in. No, although I don't like torque. You know what I like? Just nice, clean bites of steak. I don't want to be like, oh, that bite had stuff in it, and this bite. I know. I've heard all the arguments against the bone in. I just know what I I enjoy it the most. Can I just enjoy a steak? We're gonna figure this out, and I'm gonna screw around with the bone in fillet just for you. Just for you. Yeah, you just compared it to Trump. You said it was the Trump of steaks. <laughs> no, because Trump eats his well done, and that's not nice. Trump would not like the bone and fray. He would like the strip steak. Yeah. Well put, done. And put ketchup on it. I, t- I apologize for the Donald Trump line. That's that's too far. No one should be compared to that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, in terms of the menu, I sound like a basket case right now because that's what it is. This is like the worst part of opening a restaurant. We've passed the... Everything seems possible stage. Yeah. And we've now entered into the holy fucking shit. Now you're just going downhill. <laughs> this is this is a, yeah. a black hole of um, regret. 
right now. That's what it feels like. <laughs> what about pricing and stuff like that? How much thought do you put into? A lot. How expensive is the most expensive dish and things like that? I haven't spent too much time about the actual food cost of what our restaurant's going to be, you know, because you're going to whittle it down from there. What we've been trying to imagine is different price points, right? So if I'm a wealthier diner coming in from the West side or maybe from the nicer parts of Pasadena or the San Gabriel Valley and I have more disposable income, they're going to want certain things. They're, they might buy truffles or something like that. They might order some nice white burgundy or something like that. I, I don't know, but you're going to have a higher check average. You're going to have to have something for them. But you can't just make food for wealthier people because I think one of the things that we pride ourselves on is trying to make food that's of value for everyone. So we're in a place where we have to spend more time figuring out if I'm a solo diner and I've come to this restaurant and I like to go out to dinner, but I don't want to spend, you know, a hundred dollars on myself. Can I still yeah. get out of here with a great meal on like 25, 30 bucks? So that's been really difficult for us because we want that. And I've been telling everyone is like, we can't just make food for like all the luxury ingredients. We have to start to focus on like a diner like myself. If I'm eating by myself, I want like an appetizer, an entree, probably skip dessert sometimes. I don't know, or a salad or a raw yeah. bar. And I might want to try, you know, the short rib dish that we've been working on, but I don't want to commit, you know, the hundred plus dollars that it might cost. And if I can't buy the dish that is like this restaurant is famous for, I'm going to be pissed. How do we as a restaurant provide a taste or a value option for a guest that's Steakhouses do that. If you ever stay in a hotel that's attached to a steakhouse and you're by yourself, you're like, oh, I'm going to bang out a quick dinner and bring my iPad. And the, the dinner menu is just like these fancy steaks. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if I want to spend $49 on a steak I'm by myself. That's why the hamburger has become, you know, the American like meal of choice now, because even in a steakhouse, it might be like, 15 to 25 bucks. Yeah. And you're okay with that. So having that option is is really hard because we don't want to serve a hamburger, right? Maybe we will, but right now we're trying not to. We're trying to localize into things that are not being done. I'm trying to think of like weird things I've seen on a menu. Sometimes I never know what to trust with these crazy steaks that people like, oh, it's, it's $150 for the Japanese whatever. And they, Wagyu Miyazaki. Yeah, yeah, I'm always dubious. It's really good. If you did it. <laughs> I used to talk a lot of shit about Japanese beef because I couldn't afford it. Now that I can afford it, I hate the younger version of myself because it's so delicious. You think it's worth triple the price no, and double the price? it's different. It's a very different thing. What I dislike or when restaurants serve a giant cut of steak that's obnoxiously priced at like $2,000. No. Who does that? There are places that serve big cuts of very rare Japanese $2,000? You could easily sell a piece of beef for $2,000 if it was cut like a tomahawk chop ribeye. Yeah. You could easily clear. It's a Kobe beef, but it's actually Kobe. It's his, it's his <laughs> part of his butt for $2,000. But the Japanese built and designed this beef and evolved this beef so you eat small slivers of it. Yeah. And that's the sensible way to eat it. So I'm okay with that. And it's not supposed to be something you eat every day. Are you okay with steak sauce? Mm. Do I use it sometimes? Sure, if the steak doesn't taste good. I think if a really good steak, you don't need steak sauce. What if I just like steak sauce? <clears throat> Because sometimes somebody will make like a kick-ass, awesome, yeah, steak sauce spicy right, steak sauce. I like steak sauce better for like the steak fries or French fries that it comes with rather than the steak itself. Okay. I would walk out this door if you said I put ketchup on my steak. I would have just- Ketchup? Laughed. Who does yeah. that? Trump. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> and when I see people put like uh, ketchup on steak, it drives me crazy. It's, Do you get offended when people ask for stuff? Because some of the best chefs, they feel like this is- how I wanted you to eat it. Why are you asking for other ingredients? The younger version of myself, I was obnoxious as possible. And I would just probably kick people out of the restaurant or something stupid like that, or just say like, no, even on our menu, we actually had no substitutions, no special requests, but you can't do that. Sometimes. Well, know, everybody's too precious now. Right. The millennials. Can I get a <laughs> the beef stew, but no beef. And can you put tofu? Yeah. Not going down this road. I love the millennials. I'm just saying they're a little precious. I'm precious. Although somehow my wife has turned into the most precious orderer I know of anyone. 
I don't know how this happened. Where, my wife used to be to go to the baseball game and have hot dogs with me. And now it's like, can I, is there butter in that? Can I, uh, and it's a five minute order. And I'm like in the Rob Reiner, when Harry met Sally movie. And uh, I'm Harry. Everything on the side, sauce everything on the side. side. This has to be, uh, it does seem like that's where the culture is going though. You see it at Starbucks too. Well, which is why pizza is so popular right now. Not that it was never not popular, but I feel like the younger generation likes it quite a bit more because you can customize it and tailor it just for yourself. So I don't know, strange time with food. Strange time with coffee. The angriest you'll ever see me is at like 6.48 in the morning if I'm waiting for a coffee and the person in front of me is doing like a two and a half minute coffee order. <laughs> can I have this? And, and can you make it? It's like, can it just be a, a line for normal people? I still don't understand the Starbucks sizes. Do you? I just say large and extra oh, they large. Get so they get so offended with the large. They don't like that. I just want to go on record and say I think it's stupid as fuck and I can't deal with it anymore. Maybe you should have weird terminology <laughs> in your menu. We do. <laughs> We're actually really good at coming up with weird stuff. I mean, all of this menu stuff is sort of not moot, but what we're trying to figure out is how do you roll it into a bigger philosophy? We want customers to not have to be confused by what's happening and have it easy to understand. So the debate is like, what do you call it? Like the menu is diverse, but a lot of it is Korean. A lot of it is Californian. A lot of it is, so we we have people from that are contributing to the menu from the Middle East, from Mexico, from all parts of America, you know, different parts of Asia. And like, it becomes this hodgepodge of stuff. And I've always admired what Wolfgang Puck said about California cuisine. It is a melting pot. It is diversity. And I was watching this recent documentary on TV. And if you haven't watched it, it's called um, Migrant Kitchen. It's made by a couple of people from Los Angeles. It's amazing. It goes in detail about the Los Angeles food scene and and the people that make up the food scene here. And I think they were talking about Deep, the chef at Good Girl Dinette, who is amazing. She's super lovely and makes amazing food about the kind of food she makes. Or a journalist was talking about it, about food in general in California. And I'm a someone from the East Coast. I'm not a Californian, but I've long admired the ability to sort of blend and merge different cultures and almost appropriate it in a way that turns into something that's specifically for California. So I think it's presumptuous to say that we're making Californian food or anything like that. Ultimately, we just want to make simple food that looks delicious but with a lot of thought, and a lot of care into it. How much do you have to put like gluten-free, dairy allergy, like the, these menus now, some of them will have all these little signs under each dish. Right now do we're making- care? Yeah, we do care. And that's a big debate. <laughs> I love- Chispaca, the steakhouse and the multiplex, because there's like no substitutions, no special requests. Like you, you, what you see is what you get. We are working on a gluten-free bread because we're making a lot of Bing breads, oh, uh, these wow. Chinese now breads. You're talking my language. And uh, I don't know if we're going to serve it. We have a recipe and maybe we'll add that on in two, three months. But right now, I think we want to just focus on the people that can eat our bread because I mean, it's like a playbook. Let's get the basics done. And then as we develop the core culture better and the team, then we're going to add the more complicated stuff. I actually have an idea for this. I'm going to give this to you. Keep the menu the way it would have been seven years ago. But then you have like a little additional menu, almost like the cocktail menu, but it's all the stuff that's in the food for the one person at the table who gives a shit. Like, does this have butter? Does this have gluten? All that stuff. And it's just like basically the little douchebag menu that gets passed around. Here's all the deep dive on all the stuff. If you care, oh, here I don't want to say a customer's a douchebag. Um, I said it. I include my wife. You can, can I even, call my wife a douchebag? You can. <laughs> you know, it's it's. They wouldn't say a douchebag. I would say like they 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 know what they want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was well played. Um, we're figuring the menu out in terms of. I can't be as antagonistic as I was in the past. It just isn't like, there's not a sense of maturity there. We have a giant kitchen. We want to be able to provide for everyone, but that can be hard because like every dish is like, oh, can a vegetarian eat this? Can a vegan person eat this? Someone that's gluten-free. And at some point you can't worry about that. You have to just make the best food possible and then reverse engineer from there. When I worked as a bartender waiter, there was a couple of times when customers I didn't like ordered decaf and I gave them caffeinated coffee. I did. <laughs> I was young. I didn't know any better. But you know what? It felt really great. That was the most I've ever antagonized a customer. That's another thing with this. We were having an argument. We're going to have some salads. It's like, okay, like 
do we have a like a just a oil and vinegar or oil and lemon dressing? And then next thing I know, because of the salad, we might do table side. You have something for the the vegetarian, something for the vegans, and the salad dressing that we actually want to serve you. Yeah, which was with like macadamia nuts and dried shrimp and fish sauce. And then all of a sudden, people were like, "Oh, you can't serve shrimp to people." I'm like, "Oh fuck!" Right. It's a salad dressing. They can get something else. I would rather they not get something else. But if you're shellfish allergic, like we'll have other salads that you can eat, but this one is something that's going to have shellfish in it. So so my wife can't get that one. Probably not. doesn't mean I hate them. It just is like, this is what it's designed for. Listen, most people have at least one thing they can't eat. We know it's like saying you're watching a football game, like, hey, why isn't Tom Brady throwing a baseball? I'm like, you're not supposed to. It is what it is. And shrimp's delicious. Yeah. We can't, we can't help that. I really miss the making the salad by the table thing. I feel like has gone out of vogue the last no, 10 no, years. No, no, that's, that's, that's making a giant comeback. Is it? Yeah, Caesar salad has never gone out of style. Well, Caesar salad's hot as than ever. That is like table side. I feel table side is going to come back in a way that, not that it should have ever have left, but people want a little bit more of an experience dining. It always wins. It always captures the table's attention. It's fun to watch them make it. I like knowing what's in it. You can tell them not to put the anchovy in if you if you don't like anchovies, which I do not. I think they're disgusting. Sorry. It's another Donald Trump statement. Yeah. I mean, just talking about all of this. Yeah, and, see, now and, you're going in a dark place. I can see your your wheels turning now. I'm just, You've already uh, talked yourself out of four dishes. <laughs> it's just so stupid. Opening a restaurant is so fucking stupid. That's how I feel about it right now. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? Why am I doing this Why again? am I doing this? You're sort of burying your soul and you're doing a dish and then you're afraid about the criticism. And I hate to say that it's some kind of creative endeavor, but it is. And then I'm afraid like if you do this and it sucks, then all the people that are like trusting you are going to be like, I can't believe I listened to this fucking guy. So I don't want to let anyone down. So that's the feeling I'm in. And then talking to you guys about what I see is the absurdity of even talking about a dish and all the nuances. It's like, there's got to be easier things to do in life. <laughs> What's a realistic batting average for a restaurant's first menu for the dishes that are keepers? I don't know. You're looking at three to four things you can build a menu around. Yeah. Right? The signatures, the stars. More or less, yeah. I like a menu that has something that's a low-hanging fruit, something that's not challenging. Like, let's just say... um a pasta section. Oh, this is a good debate for us. Like, we're going to have noodles on. Great. But I don't want to call it pasta. You can't call it secundi. And, you know, when we opened up Nishi, we called it myun because myun is noodles in basically every Chinese dialect language from Korea, Chinese, Japanese, myun, M-E-I-N, which basically means noodles. And it's like, okay, like, what do we do? Like, can we call it noodles? Noodle bar. But we're not noodle bar. And we're... There, it's this is what makes it so hard. But even within the subcategory of noodles or myun or pasta, you want to have a pasta that's going to be sort of widely accepted. Like, hey, I want pasta, but I don't want to go out of my comfort zone. This is it. You don't want to have four pastas that are going to push everyone out of their comfort zones. And you need to have a couple that are going to be maybe a little bit more challenging, a little bit more esoteric. And then you're going to have one that is a signifier and I, we say this a lot within the team now is like, we want a dish that tells the kitchen how awesome they are as a person. <laughs> You're like, you have these dishes where yeah. it's like, oh, they're, they're adventurous. They're open. They have a highly developed palate and they're almost like daring us to like, not just serve them like total weird shit, but they're open to something different. Maybe you just make up a word. Chentada. <laughs> That's our chentada section. So I don't know. We're, we're figuring this out. Can you call it noodles? We're thinking about noodles. What's wrong with noodles? I just think it's so basic, but it is what it is. Right? I don't like pasta. Pasta no, insinuates like- It's Italian. It's Italian and also it, it, there's no, a not. workman-like name to but it. But we have a couple- Italian connotations, I We have say. a couple shapes, right? So we have a shape that's a lo mien, but it also looks like a spaghetti. So I don't want people thinking that they're eating spaghetti when they're actually eating you know, something that's not that. So. And how many desserts are you going to have? Right now we have the, we're, I feel like we've gotten really close to perfecting the hot dog. So it has pistachios. It has, man, it has a lot. I think you're going to like it. I'm just okay. going to leave it at that. I promise I will. Another thing we're trying to limit ourselves is on the desserts, we're trying not to serve ice cream. 
Oh. And that's fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, I'm almost always disappointed by restaurant ice cream. There's some really great ice cream in Los Angeles. I know there is. But I wouldn't be like, oh my God, he doesn't have ice cream. I feel like it's pretty hit or miss. So because of that, it's forcing us to think out of our comfort zones. So there's three kinds of ice creams you see quite a bit. Soft serve, which is on like so many menus because it's easy. Uh, It's not easy. I mean, I'm really proud that Christina Tosi was probably the, not the inventor of it, obviously, but a reason why Milk Bar sort of popularize soft serve ice cream. You have ice creams that are made on Paco Jet, which is basically like the f- super fancy blender. It's very technical to talk about, but it allows a, a smaller establishment to make ice cream without an ice cream machine. And then you just sort of have general bigger ice cream machines that take up a lot of room. So we have the option to do all of those. And we've decided to focus on desserts that are not ice cream. And I don't know how that's going to play out. That's a little bit terrifying. Have you thought about like a VIP type thing or something that you're capturing customer habits and consistency and things like that where they're almost part of something and they pay a certain amount a year? Well, there are two things that are interesting. One is some kind of loyalty program, yes. So what what does that look like? Not a loyalty. Still in the rough stages about it, but we have a bar. I don't want to say it's a restaurant within a restaurant, but that might be the case. And we're trying to figure out how we can offer some really interesting things and to people that like just want to eat really well. And yeah. it might be frustrating because we want to keep that sort of as democratic as possible. We sort of did that with Co years ago where it didn't matter if my mom wanted a reservation. We actually, she's actually never eat, eaten at Co because she couldn't get a reservation. I just don't want to bother people. Like so much of my time is dealt with like, hey, can you help me get a table here? And that's just such a drag. Is that true? Such a drag. Can you help me get a table on the 18th? <laughs> it's uh, it's not doesn't suck, but it's like, hey man, I haven't heard from you in like so long. Like, and you just can know when they're like, can I get a table? Yeah, it's the half-ass check-in followed by the request. Yeah, so that's sort of a drag. So we're gonna we're working on something. It's hard for me to talk about, but we're working about on an idea within the restaurant that it's going to be very open and I think really fun. But in terms of the loyalty program- My thought was like, you don't get tea dessert unless you're in the loyalty program. Well- How about that? Can we see dessert menus? You can't. You're not in the loyalty program. It's not the worst idea I've ever heard, Bill. (laughs) Well, you know how I feel about dessert. Yeah. If I was your financier, I'd be like, no desserts. We're out. (laughs) Coffee, dessert, out. But now you get them out. Finish, leave next. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly how we used to run our business. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did well. Uh, but you know what? What I learned the hard way it just doesn't work anymore. No, I know. People want to hang out, but that semi drunk hanging out after dinner, eating dessert and pushing around the little piece of coffee cake for an hour and a half. Yeah. That sucks. It's debilitating to the staff. Yeah. But I mean, people don't want to linger. I mean, the weird thing with food now is. When you went to a nice restaurant, you wanted to spend as much time there as possible. Now it's like, I want to be out of here in 90 minutes. So I think they govern themselves a little bit. Dessert wine, port scene? You like port. I just don't love port. We disagree a lot on a lot of food things. Yeah, well. You're wrong on the bone and filet. I'm not saying it's a bad cut. We might serve it. (laughs) It's so delicious. You can't just have these absolute calls. Like, it's the best steak. Nothing else matters. No, I know. They, <laughs> I've, had, I've had better steaks than the bone and filet. You know how I, I love the reliability, though. That's why we've argued about the veal chap on my podcast. But you know what's interesting is like a beef wellington. Have you ever had a good one? A good beef wellington is, but that's the thing. It's hit or miss. It's J.R. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> but like beef wellington is a dish that has been radically affected and changed by like modern techniques like plastic wrap. Yeah. So traditionally the old beef Wellington, which is like a duck cell of mushrooms, like minced mushrooms and onions and shallots and garlic, you'd wrap it, coat the tenderloin, and then you would wrap it in some kind of cabbage or some kind of spinach or something, and then encase it in the, in the pastry. And now you can like use plastic wrap to do it. So sometimes you're seeing the older school beef Wellingtons and it was originally, you would wrap it in crepes. So you'd make a crepe to, I'm getting too geeky on this. Right no, now, I, I, that was fantastic. You just made me think of something. I would love to know what the menus looked like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Because I bet there were things they did back then that have just fallen out of favor for whatever reason. Like Beef Wellington has well, to that's be the problem, one of those things. Everyone is just mining the shit from the 40s, 50s. Is that 60s. true? Yeah. But where do you even find it? I don't know, but like I know in New York, you can go eBay? to the New York Public Library. They have a collection of menus going back to 200, 250 years. Like 
George Washington era menus. It's actually pretty awesome. So because I bet there was like a lot of rabbit. I don't remember venison. That. It's weird possible. shit like that. But it's all you know, like at least weird in New York, you can shit. go to the first Japanese restaurant. You can see the first Chinese restaurant menu. What that looked like, and you're like, wow, this is wild. So. That's it, guys. This is the Dave Chang Show. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please, so I don't disappoint the podfather, Bill Simmons. So stay tuned. Listen to us next week. Mm-hmm.